Hello, Duke fans, and welcome to episode 222 of the Duke Basketball Report podcast. All twos today, including the number of hosts who are here. It is August 5th, 2020. I am your host, Sam Klein. I am here with just Jason Evans because Donald Wine is unavailable at the moment. Jason, how are you, sir? I know that you were having some issues at home this afternoon. <laughs> yeah, so when we were sitting down, uh, first of all, I delayed the recording of this podcast. Uh, Sam, thanks for tolerating me because I had uh, I had air conditioning problems here in my house, which is a big deal during the summer in Atlanta. Uh, so I was dealing with that. And then I went to the market because we had to pick up some food. And then I was sitting down. I was all ready to finally record the podcast. And I spilled an entire glass of water all over my desk. Luckily, my computer has survived. It has been a stressful day of doing nothing significant for Jason Evans. That's all I will say. Well, with that, we will talk about a variety yeah, of topics. On that. No, no comment. <laughs> no, no comment. I am, I'm moving right along. I have had, I've had no uh, particular domestic issues in the last couple of weeks to report that are of any consequence. So I will just leave all of that there. But in the meantime, we have a lot to get to today. There is a little bit of Duke-specific news because Duke players, Duke, Duke student-athletes across the spectrum, not just football and basketball, but lots of other sports returned to campus this week for what would normally have been summer session. Now it's basically just fall practices. Usually a lot of the student athletes are on campus earlier in the summer to get ready for the fall. This year they weren't able to do that because the campus was open. Anyway, Duke players are are back on campus, so we've gotten bits of reports on that. We'll get into that. But we also wanted to talk about a whole bunch of things that have been going on in the realm of college athletics around coronavirus and the movement for social justice and players' rights, all kinds of things from the Pac-12 to schools all over the country. But before we get to all of that news, I did want to come back to NBA because we are now about a week into this. All the teams have played multiple games, so we've seen all of our favorite Duke players who are in the bubble participate in at least a couple games. We had mentioned on the last episode how excited we were to see guys like Sion Williamson and J.J. Redick in the bubble. So now we've had a few games under our belt, and I wanted us to just kind of walk through a few of the highlight performances that we've seen. So, of course, we're going to have to talk about New Orleans, but Jason, I know that you are excited about a whole bunch of other guys from Gary Trent out in Portland to Jason Tatum, to Grayson Allen, whose Grizzlies we saw play the Pelicans the other night. So start wherever you want. Tell me about Dukies that you are excited to see uh, performing in the bubble. If you are a fan of Dukies in the NBA and you did not watch that Memphis-New Orleans game the other day, I, I don't know what you're doing. I don't know what's going on in your life. But that was, that was a, it was a great game. It was a lot of fun. It's between two teams competing for a playoff spot. And at least the first half of the game was all dookies. I mean, like it was crazy. Grayson Allen pretty much single-handedly kept Memphis in the game in the first half. He had 17 points in the first half of that game, hit five out of six three-pointers. Um, he is playing close to 30 minutes per game now for Memphis. If you had told me, you know, a couple months ago, well, you know, a couple months ago, NBA time, you know, back in November, December, that Grayson Allen was going to be playing, you know, around 25, 30 minutes per game for a team that was going to be in the in the NBA playoffs, I would have thought you were insane. But Grayson has really elevated his game. He's become instant offense off the bench for Memphis. He's like one of their, you know, he's sort of the 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 best offensive player on their second unit. And uh, and you saw in this game uh, against New Orleans that 
Uh, yes, he plays with the second unit, but come crunch time, the end of that game in the fourth quarter, when the game was back and forth, he was in there as well. So he's really carving out a, a major role for himself with, with Memphis. Look, I, I'll leave Zion and New Orleans to you because we got to divide this up a little bit. Um, all I'll say about Zion is I had said I was really excited for him because I thought he was going to be in great shape. Clearly, the the 10 plus days that he was outside of the bubble, um, he was not able to work out the way he wanted to. I know he was dealing with stuff and we were, we're not going to get into any of that. But um, Zion is clearly not in shape yet. There's a reason that they are monitoring his minutes. Um, but even not in shape, even, you know, not playing with the kind of explosion that we know he can, uh, he he's one of the best, most dominant offensive players in the league. The numbers he's putting up are unbelievable. Now, he's terrible on defense at the moment. He's still figuring it out. Um, and Jaron Jackson Jr. destroyed him at the end of that Memphis New Orleans game repeatedly scored on him, but then Zion would come down the other end and Zion would score for New Orleans with these. So, but Zion's still playing and Jaron Jackson, I think is now out for the season, unfortunately. So, oh, I, they, I didn't see that really. That, that's too bad. Yeah. That's, a, that's a blow. Cause he, he was a, he's a good inside out, you know, big man threat for them. But the guy I want to talk about. So I want to, okay. I did a little grace and I did a little Zion. You can do more on Zion and the, and the Pelicans. I want to talk about Gary Trent. Because, you know, again, we're this is one of these stories, one of these guys that I didn't think he'd be a major player. Gary Trent is basically playing starters minutes off the bench for Portland. He's averaging like 35 minutes per game. Um, he's scoring 18. Uh, now, uh, when I give you these stats, I'm talking about since the, since the bubble returned. I, I sort of feel like, you know, when we're talking about NBA stats, there's two sets of statistics. There's what you did the first, the first you know, 60 games of the season, <laughs> which which was four months ago. And then there's what you're doing since since everyone returned to the bubble. And I think, you know, what you're doing in the bubble is a big deal because that's where the rest of the season is going to be played. And we are seeing guys are very different. Some of them are very different now from what they were beforehand. Gary Trent is playing 35 minutes per game. He's averaging 18 plus points per game. He is currently hitting 60%, 15 of 25, 60% of his threes in the bubble. He's one of the stories of the league right now. Portland is two and one. Since the restart, they just beat Houston the other day. That's a really good Houston team that they beat. Right now, they're in the number nine spot, just one and a half games back of Memphis. It looks like, you know, if I had to put money down on a team to make the playoffs, to to win that, you know, last playoff spot, the number eight spot, you know, whether it's in a playoff matchup or whatever, I think Portland's my pick right now. They're playing great basketball. And one of the major reasons is because of Gary Trent. Um, and and it's it was shocking. I, I I just did not expect this out of him. Great to see. Great to see. You know, surprising Dukies succeeding. And then the other guy, one of the guys I highlighted a few days ago, was Jason Tatum. He was awful. I mean, awful. Clearly rusty in Boston's first game back. But he has been a beast since then. In the two games since then, he has scored thirty four points on twenty two shots in one game. 34 points on 22 shots is pretty impressive. And then 23 points on just 11 shots in the next game. So this is a guy who's scoring, you know, mid to upper 20s, super efficient, getting a lot of rebounds, getting a lot of assists. He had eight assists in one of these games. Um, Tatum appears to be back at his all-star, all-NBA kind of level. And Boston's one of these intriguing teams that really has a shot to make the NBA finals. And I, I love that after seeing some rust, we saw the real Jason Tatum after that, and and he looks like he is ready to perhaps lead this Boston team to some some special places. All right, you talk about and, some other dookies for me. Well, I was going to say it's a it's a good transition to come back to Zion to mention 
Tatum's slow start and how much he's picked up. Because as you said, the the time in the bubble, especially before the playoffs starts, is really short. These guys have to get used to being in these gyms. They have to get used to the totally different crowd environment and all the coronavirus protocol that that surrounds the games for them to succeed. It seems like Tatum learned pretty quick. Zion is, is running out of space because the Pelicans lost a couple games there at the beginning and they were already kind of tight on making the playoffs as it was. So I, I think they I think they have to win out or, or pretty much close to win out to still make the playoffs at this point. And, and there's not a ton of room for error. As you noted, Zion was fabulous in the limited minutes, especially on offense. You know, he, he, he can he can still jump. He can still run. He's made he made a number of good plays. But if you're watching the Pelicans games for Zion, you can't help but notice that the best player on the floor for New Orleans, for the most part, is Brandon Ingram, who has been one of the best players in the NBA this year. I mean, I I don't know that I need to belabor if you've been watching these games. I don't know that I need to belabor how much the commentators are talking about Brandon Ingram, most improved player in the league, Brandon Ingram, most improved player in the league. What a difference it has made for him to leave the Lakers, which I don't think is is a bad organization and I'm not sure you know if they were using him incorrectly or developing him incorrectly but clearly the change of scenery for him in new orleans has been huge and watching the rapport that he has with lonzo ball has been awesome they clearly love playing together and lonzo likes playing with zion so the whole thing seems to be to be clicking with new orleans now can they rally from these couple of losses and still make the playoffs it's going to be it's going to be tough for them but it has been really exciting to see Brandon Ingram playing at an all-star level here in the return and then let's not forget JJ Redick who has been also fabulous in the in the return has made has made big plays and and made a bunch of big shots for the Pelicans so I think while it, it looks tough for them to still make the playoffs, Duke fans should be excited about what they've seen from them. Not to mention all the all the other stars that <laughs> that you mentioned. I did want to come back to Gary Trent really quick because he is playing a key role on a team with a really fabulous lead guard in Damian Lillard, and seems to fit really well with him. I think that's a. It's tough for for players who are coming up, especially young players, uh, if they play a position that's similar to the star on the team to carve their own their own space. And Gary Trent has clearly done that and clearly has Damian Lillard's, uh, he has his attention and, and and they seem to be working well as teammates. So it's fun to watch that with Portland and it's fun to watch that with New Orleans. Those are the NBA teams that are that are sort of easier for Duke fans, I guess, to root for. Yeah, uh, ben, back to Brandon Ingram. In that win over Memphis that we said was so important and, and a lot of people talked about what Zion did in that game. The leading scorer in that game was Brandon Ingram with 24 points. He also had seven rebounds, five assists, two steals. I mean, Brandon Ingram, you're absolutely right, is New Orleans' best player right now. And it's, it's, it is. It's a ton of fun to watch the way he's able to, to play the game and, and the degree to which he's improved. Um, hey, just one more I want to mention really quickly. Lance Thomas. Lance Thomas continues to be the starting small forward for the Brooklyn Nets. Now, he only plays about 15 minutes per game. He only scores a couple buckets. He only grabs a couple rebounds, but he moves the ball around well. He plays good defense, and he's a starter on a playoff team. So props to Lance Thomas, who who found his way back into the league and and is you know is contributing pretty nicely in the bubble. And he's like thirty two or thirty three years old. It's not it's not a given that he is still in his his peak basketball condition and and still has a role for as you point out a team that's very impressive for Lance and and I I think that we're proud of him. The the one final note that I wanted to say about Ingram is that I think that we 
probably tend to downgrade our expectations of him because even though he was maybe the best player along with Grayson Allen on that 2016 team, at least in the time that you and Donald and I have been doing the podcast, the 2016 team is like first team that we've covered. They they had a four seed in the tournament. They lost in the Sweet 16, which which we all not expected, but I, I guess we, we all sort of expected. We weren't hoping for that. So Ingram is a bit of a forgotten player for us because he didn't play on one of these great teams the way that we expect from Jason Tatum and the way that we expect from maybe Morgan Bagley and R.J. Barrett and Zion Williamson. Gary Trent maybe falls into this forgotten category as well because while Gary Trent played on a very good team, a team that really could have, should have made the Final Four with Marvin Bagley and Grayson Allen, Gary Trent Jr. was the fourth or fifth option on that team. So uh, he, he didn't really get his chance to shine at Duke, but now clearly is in the NBA. We knew that he had size. We knew that he had shooting ability because he was a great shooter when he was in Durham. But the fact that he wasn't the star on the team, I think to your point, Jason, you were sort of saying he was kind of a forgotten player for you. And I think that's reasonable given sort of how little attention he got for his one season at Duke, but has really blossomed in the league. And looking back, it's like, why didn't we expect him to be great? He's a, he's pretty big for a shooting guard, and and he did shoot really well his, his one year at Duke. I don't want to say that he's the best player off that team, but right now Bagley keeps on getting hurt. Wendell Carter's had some trouble with injuries. Grayson's starting to play better and coming to his own a little bit, but Gary Trent Jr. might be the best pro from that team, at least right now. It's 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 sort of shocking, but you know, that's where we are. And 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 that team, as you know, had a lot of guys that we had high NBA expectations for. Bagley and Carter in particular. I mean, Marvin Bagley was astounding in his one year in college and and hasn't quite he shows flashes of it, but he hasn't quite gotten to that level yet at the NBA. Obviously, there is still time. All right. I think we are done with the NBA. We obviously encourage everybody to keep watching the games because they have been fantastic. And the level of play, at least to me, is higher than I expected it to be. I think that the players are motivated not just by, you know, being back on the court because that's where they belong. But I think they're all feeling this this sort of social pressure to be the best that they can because they know that they are. They feel that they are all now standing for something that is much greater than themselves. And and you can see that kind of emotion coming out in the court and in, in the sort of high production value of these games so i'm i'm really enjoying it and we'll keep watching we're going to take a quick break but when we come back we will run down all of the pandemic related stuff in college athletics right after this. So as we mentioned before the break, we want to get into all of the news related to the pandemic as it pertains to college sports. Things are still, it seems for the most part, up in the air about when games will be played in the fall, who will be playing them, and under what kinds of conditions. We, we're, we're seeing the effect right now of various leagues around the country experimenting with with playing through the pandemic. And I think we're getting a mix of results as we have talked about extensively on the show. I did want to start with the status of, of the various Duke programs that are coming back to campus. So we'll talk about basketball and football primarily because we know that those are the big sports, but it's also worth highlighting that there are other Duke sports that are on campus and that those players are also coming back. So Jason, can you run down for me really quickly? We know that there were about 300 or so student athletes that returned to campus over the last week, and Duke did have a handful of 
of cases of COVID among that student population, but they quarantined them all. And now it sounds like they're all back to practice. Do I have that right? Yeah, yeah. I believe that's what I've heard as well. It, it doesn't sound like Duke has had any bad outbreaks of coronavirus among the athletes and the, and the coaches and the such who've who've come back to campus to begin participating in, in team activities. I think the most recent report was there had been no positive tests in the latest batch of tests that were done, which is obviously, you know, great news. I think I have that right. If I'm, if I'm wrong, you know, folks, you can write to us at dbrpodcast at gmail.com and correct me, but that's what I, that's what I recall seeing. Um, there, there have been previous, you know, guys who tested positive and such. We, we, we've seen that the basketball team, the men's basketball team has returned to campus. Um, Duke Blue Planet, you know, Duke Men's Basketball Twitter uh, released a video of some of the guys arriving. The most notable thing in the video was the fact that these guys literally have like 40 pairs of of really high end Nike shoes that they that they uh, you know that they unpacked as they as they took their rooms in the Washington Duke Inn. Yes, the basketball team is staying at the Washington Duke. Must be tough to be a Duke basketball player. <laughs> um, but I mean, it it looks like Duke is trying to both be careful but also be prepared. Uh, you know, in case a season happens, in case there really are games to be played, which you know I think is still very much up in the air. Duke wants to be ready. But we're also, you know, the school's also being very careful and very cautious, and I think doing things in a very prudent kind of fashion. Yeah, so I pulled up the release from the athletic department that said that they only had, I think it's nine students who, who tested positive among the athletes. They had just over 300 who had arrived back on campus, and that they're all subject to a testing and quarantine protocol when they arrive, as well as ongoing testing throughout the semester, and that there are also going to be limits on access to campus. And, and all nine of those tests were, were kids who had not yet been on campus. They, they, they tested positive upon returning to campus. That's why I said the zero, the zero figure was folks who were on campus, uh, you know, for any, for whatever reason it may have been for a sport, did not, there were no one, no one, Duke doesn't believe that anyone has gotten the coronavirus among their athletes since returning to campus. And every school is, at least, at least all the Power Five schools are all trying to do something to this effect. How well it is going to work everywhere is, is still up in the air. And on top of it being a student athlete issue, it is also a general population issue for all of the students and all of the faculty and all of the staff who are on campus. So Duke is trying to figure out how to reopen all of its facilities, not obviously just as athletics, because school is supposed to start in a few weeks for for every student on campus. So I've been talking to friends who are who are back there, mostly in the business school, but in, in other parts of the university as well, about what their protocols are going to be. I know that in the in the business school, for instance, they're they're enacting all kinds of social distancing measures inside the school and mostly encouraging students to to not show up unless they unless they really feel like they have to. So it's a it's a big challenge that universities are going through and something I'm sure that, you know, you don't have to come to us to hear about all the all the challenges going on. I did want to kind of go around and highlight the some of the other challenges that are that are happening related to coronavirus at other schools, because they may present examples for things that that Duke might have to deal with or, or things that will affect how the NCAA chooses to administer sports in the fall. To this point, as of it's Wednesday afternoon. The NCAA Board of Governors has not canceled any fall championships. There's a lot of rumblings about about if that might happen, might they push things to the spring? It seems like there are there are 
lot of folks who think that it is prudent to do so. Uh, one of the most interesting notes that I saw the other day was that the governor of Mississippi, who uh, made some comment about how he really, really does not want to wear masks, but he encouraged the people of Mississippi to wear masks because that's the only way we're going to have college football in the fall. So I think you can feel the tide turning a bit on on all of this. But I did want to sort of highlight where some of those differences might be. For example, it was either, I think it was yesterday, University of Connecticut announced that they are canceling their football season. Their conference is not going to be playing uh, football anyway, and they were down to non-conference games. On the same day that the Big well, Ten wait, announced... Wait, wait, wait. Let, 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 let's be clear about UConn. They, they were a member of the AAC conference, but they left the AAC um, and were going to go independent in football. And they recognized that this is a really bad season to be an independent team. They only had uh, they only had one or two games sort of left on their schedule because they had games they're supposed to play against Illinois, Old Miss, Indiana, and Maine, all of which had been canceled because of you know decisions by the, those various leagues, the, the Big Ten, the SEC, and the such. UConn still had games at Virginia and North Carolina that were supposed to happen, but we've already heard the ACC is you know, has cut down severely on non-conference games. And I would not be surprised if UConn had sort of unofficially heard from Virginia and North Carolina, no, you're, you're not going to be the one team we're going to pick. So I think UConn recognized as an independent, there's just not going to be many chances to play games. And it wasn't worth it for them to stage a season to play three games. Sam, I think you brought this up. It was you or Donald, one of you guys brought this up last podcast. For, for schools that are not part of a big conference that could, is – trying to stage eight, nine, 10 games, playing three random games against teams from out of state is not a smart nor a profitable thing to do. And so UConn became the first FBS school to say, okay, we're out, we're not playing. So that happened on the same day that the Big Ten announced an expanded league schedule. So all the Big Ten teams got a, a 10-team schedule. Remember that the Big Ten has 14 schools for some reason. So... 10 games does not mean you're playing 10 opponents. It means you're, well, it means you're playing 10 opponents, but you're not playing the whole league. So the Big Ten is playing 10 games. They're getting two bye weeks during that season, but it is basically a normal college football season for the Big Ten as far as like the length of time that they're playing. They still have a championship game on the schedule. So Jason, I want I want you to, to highlight the contrast between the decision that UConn made and the Big Ten announcing that they are basically going ahead as of now with a full schedule. Yeah, and I think it's really interesting the way the Big Ten put this schedule together. Uh, they, they are very clear that, that games may be moved, games may be canceled, some teams may have outbreaks and have games, you know, have to be postponed. They put together a schedule that is really movable. They, like you said, there are two bye weeks. There's an entire week where no one in the conference is scheduled to play a game where I think that their plan is, oh, if, if something happens and we have to move a game, that's a week where we can move it to. It, it, it's really interesting. It, it, it's a whole model for how they will move games around. They're calling it strategic se- sequencing. But, uh, you know, the Big Ten is trying to be as flexible as possible with their team schedules because, look, the baseball – Baseball is in a situation where they've got some teams who've played 10, 11 games and some teams they've only played like two or three games because of, you know, teams going into COVID quarantine. And so the Big Ten is trying to prepare for all that kind of stuff 
uh, again, the same thing I said about the ACC last week. I, I'm glad they're preparing. I'm glad that they're trying to figure out a way to make it work. But at the same time, I think there's a recognition here by everyone that that this may be impossible. And, and, and there's one more thing about the Big Ten, one thing they said that I thought was really, really interesting. They announced new medical protocols. They're going to test everyone on these teams twice a week. And, and this sort of segues to another story that we're going to talk about in a little bit involving Colorado State. But the Big Ten said that they are using a third-party laboratory to conduct all the coronavirus tests. And the reason for that is they want consistency and compliance with testing. And what they are secretly saying with that is, we don't want the schools conducting these tests because we don't trust the schools to come back with the proper results. If your star running back or star quarterback feels perfectly fine and is experiencing zero symptoms and the test comes back and says he's positive, they don't want the coach going, God, should I maybe play him anyway? He's fine. He's not going to, you know, he's no danger to anyone. They want a third party out there doing the tests and then saying, this player is safe. This player is not because that way you won't have coaches or programs or players making unwise health decisions. And I applaud the Big Ten for doing that, even if they didn't openly say this is to prevent teams from cheating and trying to play players who have the disease but aren't experiencing symptoms. They are trying to keep as many people safe as they can. Look, we're not going to pretend that college football is the most important thing that must happen for society to remain intact, right? It is it is a luxury that we are able to play sports and watch sports and all of that in the middle of this. And the Big Ten, I think, made up of a lot of institutions that that are pretty conscious of of you know what their purpose is, looked at this and said, we have to do it this way because otherwise we're going to very quickly fail and get ridiculed for it. And because they've seen other leagues and other institutions do that, and they don't want that. Jason, I'm so glad that you brought up Colorado State because I think while we can look at the Big Ten as doing everything they possibly can to bring us college football in a time when perhaps we don't deserve college football, but we might be able to get it anyway. There are stories from around the country about schools that do not seem to be doing all that they can to help student athletes and they're fighting back. I think we'll get in a minute to the letter that a number of Pac-12 athletes signed in, in asking for a broad list of demands around athlete rights and medical protections and financial compensation and all of that. But we had to talk about the thing that was going on at Colorado State, where it appears that co football coaches were uh, pressuring student athletes to uh, to play despite potentially either testing positive or, or being in danger for having tested positive and being around people who are infected with COVID. Now the university president is stepping in. We've had also reports about student athletes at other schools like Virginia Tech, which is an ACC school, losing one of its best players, saying that he's not comfortable playing in, in, in the under the protocol that Virginia Tech has put in place. Minnesota's had the same thing happen. So tell me about, about any of this stuff and, and what kind of strikes you the most as being particularly irresponsible in all of it. So that would be Steve Adazio, who is the new head coach at Colorado State. If the name rings a little bit of a bell, this, this guy was the head coach at BC for seven seasons until he got fired back in December. He was consistently winning six or seven games every year at BC, and BC was like, look, okay, but we need to do sometimes better than six or seven wins. So he got fired, and he just recently got, hi got hired 
fairly quickly at Colorado State. So he's brand new on the job. Telling your players, hey, I want you to fake, you know, I don't want you to report when you have COVID conditions. I don't want you to be, you know, we're going to cover up COVID tests. Um, I'm going to take your health and risk your health. Probably not a good way to win over the faith and loyalty of your players who many of whom have have probably barely met you. The same thing, the same thing happening at Washington State, where it's come out that the yep. that their new head coach is is doing similar monkeying with the with the players, telling recruits that that they, you know, all all, all the same kind of stuff. So this is not necessarily unique to Steve Adazio, but sorry, continue. Yeah, and by the way, when Steve Adazio left BC, some of his former players tweeted some somewhat negative, you know, it wasn't like huge allegations, but some somewhat negative things about him. This is a guy who is not loved at BC. And and so his tenure at, at Colorado State begins with what is blowing up into a fairly significant scandal. The, the school's conducting an investigation. The, I know there are some Colorado State players who have t- come to Twitter and said, no, you know, I never heard anything about this. This is not true. But the, the stories about it are quoting multiple sources again and again. My bet is that there are some players at Colorado State who were told by Steve Adazio or members of his staff, let's cover this COVID stuff up. And there's some who weren't. If you do it to even one kid, though, that's one too many. Um, and, and I won't be at all surprised. Uh, Colorado State, you know, Steve Adazio just arrived there. I don't know how committed to him they feel. Um, I wouldn't be shocked if Steve Adazio is fi- is looking for new work um, fairly soon as a result of, of all this stuff. It, it it looks bad. And for a guy like this, he, he's going to have trouble recruiting um, because if you're recruiting against him, you just go, yeah, this is the guy who didn't care about the health of his players. He cared more about winning. And, and it's just a really, really bad look for right now. I, I, I suspect there are other programs out there who are doing this kind of stuff. You mentioned Washington State. Uh, and I think that's probably why we saw the Pac-12 players come forward and make a pretty, pretty big statement um, about the power that players have now compared to what they had in pre-COVID times, because it it's becoming clear that the athletes are able to speak up in ways that they hadn't been able to in the past. Let me toss it to you. Tell me your impressions of the Pac-12 players, what they asked for, and you know whether you think they're going to get any of these things, because because this is the closest thing, you know, since Northwestern tried to, to organize as a union, this is the closest thing we've seen to players being organized in a union-like fashion to say to college sports, these are our demands and you must do this or we will not play. Yeah, I did want to follow up before I get to the Pac-12 letter. I had one more kind of thought about the Colorado State thing in Please. that we've, we've thought about how the coronavirus pandemic is an opportunity for sort of real leaders to, to step up and, and, and show who they are. And I think a lot of people in, in leadership roles, be they in universities, in athletic departments or elsewhere, can talk a lot about what it means to be a leader. But but it's it's crisis times when these things become important. This is a lot of the kind of stuff that we talk about in business school. So I feel like I've been I've been preparing for this for this moment for a couple of years. But this this whole thing with Steve Adazio is a perfect example of when you know when push comes to shove, are are you the kind of leader that people are going to look up to? And and to your point, Jason, I don't think that Steve Adazio is is demonstrating those qualities right now. He's not showing that that he's capable of actually leading a team and a program through 
through adverse moments. So yeah, he, he might not be long for that job, but it doesn't seem like he's, he's worthy of it anyway. So CSU will go, will go find somebody who, you know, is more up to the task. I do want to get to the Pac-12 letter because I think it's probably the most interesting development in this last week of anything that's COVID related, because it comes from players from a number of different universities, obviously all in the Pac-12. So they're geographically in one one part of the country, and more importantly, that they come from different sports. So they've they've sourced the list of demands here, not just from football players, although it sounds a lot like it's from football players, but it's come from athletes who are outside of football. Uh, there's a Bomani Jones piece that he put up a couple of days ago about how the whole thing came together that I'd recommend folks read. So generally, it, it's divided into four sections. They have a list of health and safety protocols, specifically around COVID-19. They have demands, uh, what they're calling protect all sports, which it is they're really their way of saying that they want less money allocated towards the salaries of administrators and fancy facilities and more towards keeping the sports and scholarships intact, uh, in specifically in reference to, to Stanford's recent cut of, of 11 varsity sports, which we had talked about a couple of weeks ago. The third section is around ending racial injustice. So this ties back to the sort of greater social movement that's been going on and asking these schools to, to sort of play their part in that, in that ongoing struggle. And the last they're calling economic freedom and equity, which is around, it includes a lot of the name, image, and likeness stuff, but also includes a lot of uh, items about freedom of movement, so players being able to transfer. And then the thing that I found most interesting about this, and that I think there's a few angles to, and what I wanted to start with, is a demand to distribute 50% of each sport's total conference revenue evenly among athletes in their respective sports. So Obviously, we've been talking a lot on this show and anywhere that you consume college basketball media about the players getting a larger slice of the of the revenue from the games that they are participating in and they're putting their bodies on the line for. There's the traditional argument that the student athletes are there for school, that they get their compensation through the tuition benefit and, and all the and all the sort of attendant benefits that come with being a student athlete food and housing and clothing and and academic support, all of that kind of stuff, which we don't argue is worthless. It's not worthless. It's worth something. But we've said, I think on this show a lot, that the athletes sort of deserve more than that. And this is them putting that demand forward. 50% may be more than, than they are actually able to get, given the way that athletic departments are structured. We've also heard a lot, sometimes not fully in good faith, but for the most part, the administrators of these schools say, look, it's not like the athletic departments are making huge amounts of money for these schools. Yes, we're, we're paying the administrators a lot. The athletic directors at some of these places can make a million dollars. Certainly head basketball and football coaches can make millions of dollars. Once you distribute that money around to the players, there isn't a ton left. But is there something in between that, that they could come to a sort of equitable agreement about? That's the interesting thing here. And I was thinking about this from the lens of players on campus. So one thing that I remember from being a student at Duke is that the the players from different teams sort of notionally supported each other. I had friends who were varsity athletes who were captains of varsity teams, and they had programming for like the captains of, of all the teams sat on a council together where they discussed issues between their teams. So if you were the captain of the women's soccer team, you talked to the captain of the bas- men's basketball team about what kind of challenges they were facing and they would work on things together. 
this demand of 50% of the revenue going back to the back to the athletes in those sports, I think drives something of a wedge between the revenue sports that football predominantly, but then men's basketball and then women's basketball on some campuses, maybe baseball on some men's ice hockey on some campuses. It goes towards funding the other sports. It goes towards funding the facilities and the coaches for all those other sports to exist. So there is a little bit of tension in this demand being in a letter that also includes demands for saving sports by cutting administrators. Now we're now we're really dicing a, a small pie. The football and men's basketball players against those student athletes from the other programs. And it's interesting to me that you had student athletes who are not from big revenue generating sports signing on to this letter, knowing that it might be impossible. Maybe it's possible for Stanford to to bring those some of those sports back and reinstate those sports because they're not going to be paying a men's basketball coach $2 million a year. I don't know that they can bring them all back and they certainly can't fund all those sports if a lot of that football revenue is going to the football players. That's the that's the part to me that, that, that seems pretty challenging. I also wanted to direct listeners. I mentioned that Bomani Jones had a great piece about this. Andy Staples at The Athletic had an excellent rundown of of all the demands and how feasible they all were. And I, I would encourage readers or listeners to go check that out because I think you'd get a good sense of what actually is going to work for players and which of these are just negotiating ploys for them to use as a starting point. I think that 50% revenue demand is a is a starting point and that, and that there is somewhere in the middle that we will get to between name, image, and likeness, between ticket revenue, all these different things that, that go into how the athletic departments are structured, where the athletes are going to feel like they are appropriately compensated on top of, of course, the tuition and the, and, and all the other, all the other stuff. But Jason, I, give me your, give me your thoughts and feel free to pick anything from the letter that, that kind of stands out to you. Well, so two things jumped out at me as you were talking. The first one is, and you got to it toward the end. Hey, Sam, you've been in business school. Do you know how to negotiate? Negotiation does not mean you come to the table with exactly what you will live with. You come to the table with what you want, probably more than what you want, because you know you're going to have to give a little here and give a little there to get a little in other places. So when they say 50% of the revenue, they don't actually expect to get 50% of the revenue. I don't even think, I don't think anyone expects they'll get 50% of the revenue. And and 50%, by the way, is more like if they were making this analogous to a pro sports league. So if you look at Major League Baseball or the NFL or the NBA, those players make approximately different sports. It's a, it's a different number. Baseball's moves around, but it's around 50% of the revenue that ends up going to players' salaries. Programs that do not support anything related to universities or, or other sports or anything like that. Right. And, and so I think that they know they're not going to get 50%, but hey, that's a good number. You're right. That's sort of where the NBA and where a lot of these other leagues do it. So let's start there and negotiate from that you know, point onward. I, I think they will probably be thrilled and happy if they merely get the right to immediately profit off their name, image, and likeness. You know, if they if they win that and they don't get a share of ticket revenues and television revenues, I still think it's a pretty big win for, for college sports. And then the other thing that jumped out at me was, uh, and you alluded to this, the, the sort of, it's not a rift, but the gulf between the revenue sports, and the non-revenue sports. I'll tell you that if the, if women's crew team at, at UCLA wants 50% of the revenues that is generated by women's crew, they're entitled to that $12. <laughs> it's just not, they're, they're, these non-revenue sports aren't generating a meaningful amount of money. And, and, you know, I joke and I laugh about it, but at the same time, it's worth noting 
the revenues generated by the football team and by the basketball team and by a couple other sports, that's how these schools are able to afford to play the non-revenue sports, the Olympic sports, as we put them. And I don't think anyone wants to see those going away. We've talked about the peril that is faced with those non-revenue sports right now and how we're seeing more and more programs get canceled. Um, I am not saying I don't want the players to succeed in a lot of these demands. I think a lot of what they've asked for is very, very reasonable. The social justice stuff is an absolute must. The safety behind COVID testing and COVID protocols, an absolute must. And, and they are 100% right to be asking these difficult questions and expecting the coaches, the administrators, the schools to come up with solutions and answers that provide for safety. But when you start getting into players earning a big share of revenue, I mean, there might be a time somewhere in the future where that kind of thing can happen. But for now, I think it, it'd be a difficult, if not impossible, pill for college athletics to swallow and for college athletics not to be completely torn apart and for a number of sports to go away. So getting back to where I started, this is a beginning of a negotiation by these Pac-12 players. I applaud them for taking the step. I think it's the right thing to do. And as they sit down and talk to Pac-12 administrators, I'm sure that 50% revenue share is going to shrink, if not completely disappear. And if they get everything else and they don't get that, I think it's a huge win. So good luck to them. I think they're doing the right thing. And you're not going to get 50% of the revenues of the sport. The schools can't afford it. And you would kill every other sport if you did it. I was talking to a friend of mine who's a senior compliance officer in a Division One school. They're not a they're not a football playing school, but you know they they sponsor all the other big sports. And I was asking him kind of what what are the implications of that because it, it's not just about moving revenue from you know some administrator salary to back to the players or or moving it from one sport to another. But in addition, the the NCAA is likely to be adding this name, image, and likeness legislation here. It was maybe going to start happening this summer. Now it's probably getting pushed to next year. But the implications of all of that are also going to change fundamentally the way that the athletic departments operate. They are going to be representing these players in these licensing deals that they're going to be getting. So there's going to be a huge change in the way that particularly the really big Power 5 schools are running their athletic departments as you know advertising engines for, for their top players. And so what my friend was saying is that you're going to see now a, 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 this and this letter exemplifies there's going to be an accelerating rift between the power five schools and, and maybe even a smaller group of the schools that are really committed to being big brand programs. There's a, going to be a, a shift where those guys are going to want to do their own thing. And the schools that are not as committed to that, the lower level football playing schools, the non-football playing schools are going to say, you know what? We our, our, our athletic department is not here as this huge revenue generator. It's here to be a component of the university and, and to be sort of part of the rest of the university ecosystem. And and I think you're going to see the NCAA either split different rules, even more so than already exist between divisions one, two, and three, vastly different rules for for the big time programs versus the programs that are just kind of there because, because they like it and, and they want to be a part of it. This letter is just accelerating, I think, that that inevitability. And that, that's really what my what my friend was saying is sort of the, the underlying implications of what's going on here. Because 
everything changes in the athletic department if you are if you're moving revenue around. Compliance works differently. The administrators work differently. The coaches. I mean, we we think right now about how coaches can bounce between the pro leagues and and college. Well, if in the pro leagues they can pay them millions of dollars, and at the college game they can only pay them you know low hundreds of thousands, you are not going to be seeing coaches jumping back and forth so often. It's going to be a much bigger thing to, to get a pro coaching job. Everything gets thrown out of whack in all of these markets if you if you make these changes. The other thing that I wanted to wrap up with, Jason, that, that you touched on was the inclusion of all the social justice reform here. And the interesting thing that, that we always talk about is how the revenue sports in particular are mostly played by black athletes. That's football at every level. That's men's basketball at every level. Um, at the you know, at the very top of the, those sports, all the way through the bottom of Division One, and and it's a big part of the conversation right now because I think a lot of these athletes are finally waking up and realizing that they have a big voice in all of this, and that they they have a platform to enact change in these places where it has been done sort of the same way for a long time, um, and and it's a it's an interesting part of the of the greater social movement that's going on. And I think it, it'll be fascinating to watch the way, you know, th- I think this is just the beginning. I think that the, the PAC 12 letter from the athletes is just the beginning of the way that student athletes are going to be using their voice to further all kinds of, um, all kinds of progressive agendas that, that they're going to want to push. So, so let this be a sort of warning to administrators that this stuff is not going away. It is, it is coming. And and the ones who respond to it appropriately and, and thoughtfully are, I think, going to be hailed as 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 real difference makers uh, in not only in college athletics but in the in the greater social movement. So that's going to be a, a really neat thing to watch, and, and and I think we're going to have great stories to tell about some of the administrators that have stepped up and and come to logical solutions here, rather than digging in their heels and and trying to fight what to us feels somewhat inevitable. But we're going to leave it there for now. Sam, really yes, quickly before we go, there's one more thing I wanted to mention to folks out there. Um, and I apologize. Uh, just this past a couple of days ago um, was the deadline for players to pull out of the NBA draft. And there were a number of interesting decisions that happened that are going to impact the college basketball scene for next season. Um, the most significant of those decisions were probably – Luca Garza of Iowa said that he's going to return. He will probably be the preseason player of the year, and Iowa will be a legit top 10 team with him back on it. Uh, Jared Butler of Baylor is returning. Baylor is one of these teams that a lot of people say is probably going to be the preseason number one team. Corey Kispert of Gonzaga said that he's going to come back, um, provides them with a great outside shooter. Uh, you know, he's another guy who folks thought might go in the draft. Gonzaga is going to be a team that may be preseason number one as well. And for for Duke fans, it's not a Duke thing, but Arizona State got a couple players back, including Remy Martin. Remy Martin is probably going to be a preseason All-American as well. Um, and it is entirely possible that Bobby Hurley, the head coach of Arizona State, is going to have a preseason top 20 team um, thanks to Remy Martin's decision. And there was one other guy, I blanked on who it is, uh, who, who decided to come back to Arizona State um, Bobby's going to have, you know, arguably, uh, at least in the preseason, his his best team coming into next season. Uh, so a lot of guys, uh, we had a lot more guys decide to come back to college basketball than than we usually see. Uh, I believe there are only like 64 guys have left their name in the draft. 
in the past few years, we've seen 80 plus players going into the draft and, and not pulling their name out. Um, and so it probably means that, you know, you've got an extra 10, 15, maybe 20 guys uh, who are going to be playing college basketball, having an impact on college basketball this season than we've seen in previous seasons. And as a result, this may be a year where it's not freshmen who dominate the sport. It may be juniors and seniors who dominate college basketball. So we'll come back and talk, I think, a little bit more about NBA draft decisions as we as we hear about that next week. And thank you for bringing it up because I had totally forgotten that that was happening. Now, I think that we are done for topics for this week. Do any of those players return actually to college basketball? Because who knows if we're going to have a basketball season because we're still in the middle of the pandemic. But in the meantime, of course, get in touch with us. We would love to hear from you. We will be back as soon as there are more, either more things in the mail and answer some questions, which will be on episode 223, because this was episode 222 of the Duke Basketball Report podcast. For Jason Evans, who's here, for Donald Wine, who is not, I was your host this week, Sam Klein. That is it for this episode. Duke Band, take us home.